Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. This is Katie Parker, the Local Foods and Small Farms Educator in Quincy, Illinois. And today we have a special guest with us, Richard Henschel, and he's going to be talking to us about fall lawn maintenance. But of course, we always have our co-host, Ken Johnson. How are you doing today, Ken? Not bad. How are you? Oh, things are warming up again. We had a nice little break uh, in temperatures, uh, but nice and warm again. How about yeah. things in Jacksonville? They're warming up a little bit. We went to the state fair um, Did you? last weekend. So it was, I think it's the nicest weather there's been there since I've been going to it the last few years. So Yeah, it was that's still awesome. The, it's still in the 80s, but a breeze. Right. Yes. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Between 95 and sweltering humidity. So did kids have fun? They did. So I did some 4-H judging, did the entomology and beekeeping awesome. for Saturday, Sunday, and wife and kids got to enjoy the <laughs> the other stuff. So of course we have Richard, the expert on lawn care with us today. Uh, and Richard's going to tell us all about how we can uh, spruce up our lawns and make them look good um, for next spring and what we can do this fall to help maintain them. So how are you doing, Richard? Pretty good today. We've also been experiencing a little more mild weather recently, so a lot more comfortable today as it has been the last couple, three days, actually. So it's good. Good deal. Good lawn growing weather. <laughs> so Richard, what was it that got you uh, most interested in lawn maintenance? Grew up in the nursery business, small family nursery, and and from there, of course, not of course, but went to U of I and the degrees. And it's always been a, while my degrees were kind of in horticulture, ornamental horticulture, turf was always one of those things that floated along um, right with it. And if you do landscaping, you do sod it or you do seed. So it was just kind of a natural for uh, my learning curve, I guess, when I was in school. And uh, that's just continued to carry through. So I don't do too bad. I'm not the absolute Southern Illinois expert, perhaps, but for Central to Northern Illinois, I'm, I'm not too bad. Now, Richard, is your background picture, is that your lawn at home? Well, one would hope so, but no, regretfully, that is a picture of the mansion in Springfield and part of their grounds. And um, it just makes it for a, a kind of a nice, soothing background. So I continue to use it. So that's your second home then? Yeah, that's my summer home. <laughs> <laughs> Down here in Southern <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> yep. All righty. So as always, we have some questions for Richard uh, that we have received from people in our communities on topics that pertain to lawn maintenance in the fall. So Ken, do you want to start us off with our first question? Sure. And this is one um, I think probably a lot of us as horticulture educators have experienced when we start talking about lawns is that a lot of times, especially nowadays, um, we kind of, people kind of vilify lawns, um, especially with kind of the native plant movement and all that is lawns are kind of these ecological deserts that don't support, you know, pollinators and, and all these other things. Um, but what are some arguments for kind of having, having a lawn at your, or a yard um, at your home? Okay. Well, um, first off, I, I guess I say that if you have that, uh, the argument against lawns is a little stronger if you have the best pristine lawn in the neighborhood because you've eliminated a lot of other things that might be environmentally friendly or at least uh, from the naturalist viewpoint uh, friendly. Um, so in a way, um, the, if you allow some weeds in your yard and very specifically, I guess I would talk about dandelions because they're one of the first food sources of insects in the spring of the year. So uh, if there's a few dandelions in your yard, you, you uh, are supporting nature in that way. But other, besides that though, uh, lawns are good for trapping, holding and absorbing uh, water runoff during a rainstorm. Uh, we know that uh, there is something like 12 million tons of dust and debris that in a year nationwide that uh, uh, our turf grabs and absorbs. Um, Lawns produce oxygen that we breathe, just like our trees, shrubs, and evergreens, and our native plants, and our perennials, and our veggies do. Um, there was a figure a few years back that said um, 55 square feet of turf can supply enough oxygen for one person for a day. 
So if you need to justify being able to breathe in and out every day, uh, you can thank part of that as you can is you can thank your lawn. Um, because lawns um, use energy and take in carbon dioxide and give off oxygen and use the benefits of what's in the soil for nutrition. Um, we, we also know that uh, there's uh, a cooling effect that occurs, just like when you drive through the forest preserve in the, in the summertime, the forest preserve seems to be several degrees cooler and that cooling effect happens in lawns as well. Some additional information that I could share would be about um, if you took the typical homes of about eight or 10 homes, uh, that's the equivalent of about 70 tons of air conditioning. So turf makes a difference in terms of cooling. They also absorb about 50% of the radiated heat that hits them from the sun. Uh, they absorb that and they use it to uh, for in transpiration and respiration and the production of, of uh, food reserves for themselves. So there's some heat absorption that way. Um, I think one of the nicest things that they can do though, uh, along with all the other things I've talked about is uh, they're great at improving the soil. When you think about the fact that a grass plant lives and dies and is always regenerating itself practically on a continual basis, that organic matter that falls to the ground falls to the surface and, and the dead roots that occur from time to time um, really adds to the organic matter content of the soil and all that is very good in terms of uh, conditioning the soil profile. And then lastly, and I'll just say that depends upon the perceived value of having a lawn, uh, certainly property values. So uh, in the, the high end neighborhoods in here in Northern Illinois, you know, lawn is kind of number one. Uh, in other parts of the state, lawn might be something that uh, just keeps the dust down and we're just as happy with that as well. So it depends upon how, how we're perceiving a lawn, whether or not it, uh, it's never gonna hinder the value uh, and it will probably only increase the value. So those are some examples I, I can think of. And I'll say that it's much nicer having kids running through your grass instead of your flower beds too. There you go. <laughs> A lot less frustrating. Yep, yep. Good to know that my grass is doing something other than just growing. Right, I mean, it, it, and clearly from the environmental standpoint, um, post-World War II when pesticides became a big deal, and we, we lost the clovers out of our lawn. The clovers were a good food source for our insects and our bees and flies and wasps and things that uh, I can, it's understandable why sometimes as, as Ken mentioned, lawns are um, vilified, so to speak. So all summer we've been seeing um, a lot of mowing going on, but soon we'll see um, some different activities going on as fall is often referred to as one of the best times of year for, to, for doing maintenance work to our yards, such as seeding, fertilizing, controlling weeds, and aerating. Mm -hmm. Can you um, take us through the process of seeding your lawn in the fall? Sure, and just to strengthen your comment about the fall seems to be the better time. When we do our activities in late summer and fall, we're going into cooler, wetter weather. Those are the preferred conditions for grass to grow. When we do some of these same activities in the spring of the year, we are gambling a bit in that we do our do these activities and then we hope it doesn't turn hot and dry before say the grass is up and we've been mowing it for a couple, three, four times. Um, as it turns hot, it may require even more irrigation and water on our part versus the fall when we would have typically our fall rains. So that's really the difference why we talk about why fall might be the preferred time to do a lot of these activities. But let's just say we're talking about doing a lawn here and it's already the middle of August. Uh, for Northern Illinois, um, the best seeding time is probably right now through about the first week in September. And that's only because we want the grasses up and out of the ground and mowed several times before the, essentially the killing frost comes when we quit mowing. Central Illinois has, a, has again, a bit, a bit of a slightly different window. Um, we could probably start there in any time, probably in the 1st of August through maybe the middle of September. Southern Illinois has the opportunity to 
um, do some seeding work clear even into October before their season shuts off. So it's really very, you gotta be really be mindful of your local conditions and what part of the state you're in, but fall's still a great time. Um, another benefit of doing fall seeding is that about 98% of the weed seeds germinate in the spring. So if you are able to sow in the fall uh, and your lawn is up, you have a big head start next spring as to whether or not you're going to have a lawn that's, that, that has a heavy amount of weed seed germination in it or has the grass already uh, become competitive enough that that's gonna be, you know, that's gonna be limited. If you're putting the lawn down for the first time, we always talk about having a soil test done and that's still advisable. You uh, learn um, what the soil needs in order to grow um, your lawn well. Um, the, probably the biggest part of that might be the soil pH, the level of alkalinity or acidity. Um, it should, should be somewhere between six and seven. 6.2 to 6.8 might be the ideal but anywhere close is going to certainly work for, for lawn seed and get it up and growing. Um, if you're doing that lawn from scratch for the first time, certainly that provides the opportunity to fix it, to fix the soil. If there are amendments needed, if you need to add particular uh, nutritional elements, putting it down and working the soil before you actually do the seeding is really good. And then the other part that is pretty critical when we're talking about grass seed certainly is you put that grass seed down, it has to have constant, even but light moisture for as little as three to five days before we may see a perennial ryegrass coming up, but more like 10 to 14 days for Kentucky bluegrass hybrids. So that whole time that that germination process is occurring, uh, the soils need to be kept evenly moist. And we're only talking about the soil profile really where that seed is. So that upper you know, three eighths to half an inch kind of a range is what really needs to be kept moist. Then as the seedling seeds do germinate and start to grow and those roots start to drive down into the soil profile, our watering pattern should change to be a little less often, but a little more thorough. And that deeper soils then will kind of force or push those roots down farther into the soil profile. So watering is pretty critical. And I, I think if there's a, a challenge here for homeowners is we see it up, we've been mowing it, we think, okay, it's established. And you really need to continue that mowing practices um, and watering practices, especially the watering practices, it, to be sure you're supplementing what mother nature does give us or doesn't give us so that we have good root growth well into the fall. That's what's gonna carry that grass plant through the winter. Right, so another thing we hear about a lot of times is uh, fertilizing our yards, our turf. Is that something we should be doing in the fall or does that kind of depend on, you know, how many applications we're going to make? How does that kind of work out? Exactly. <laughs> what we're, what you need to decide is, you know, um, if you're going to water all season long, that's a different, different fertilizer management program if you, than if you don't water at all. Uh, if, you, if you're only ever going to fertilize once a year, your fall application is preferred over the spring application. And that's really due to the idea that we want to set that grass plant up or the, our lawn up for a good solid overwintering and then a good period of growth in the springtime. So that helps get it through the winter. So uh, no watering, one fertilization a year, let's do that in the fall, still during periods of active growth so that the grass can absorb those nutritional elements out of the fertilizer. Um, and that's fertilizer, whether that's organic or inorganic, um, and that would benefit it uh, the best come throughout the winter and then in, into next spring. If you're interested in fertilizing say twice a year, then we're, we're doing the same kind of activity in the spring. We want to apply that fertilizer uh, towards the latter half of the spring's uh, growth cycle. And that will continue or carry on the grass a little greener, a little longer before the drought finally uh, takes it out in terms of dormancy. And the same again in the fall. Um, some folks will even split the fall application. They'll put some on uh, early September and another amount of that fall application at the end of September or into early October, but essentially fall would be the second time. If you are someone that has the luxury of 
an irrigation system or dedicated to moving the sprinkler and the hose around, then we're, then we're addressing maybe three times a year. Because if you're going to water, the lawn needs that energy in the middle of the summer. So that summer application of fertilizer or nutrition is, is going to be really, you know, really good. Um, the key in all of this is, and I've said it twice already, but during periods of active growth, it won't do any good to put that material down if the lawn is dormant. In fact, it may move off target because it never got used by the grass plant. Um, so you, you want to make sure you, you have it put down at a time when it can actively be used by the grass itself. So one thing I've heard is kind of Mother's Day, Labor's Day, Labor Day um, is kind of when to fertilizer is kind of an easy way to remember. Uh, is that accurate? What, whatever set of two dates you'd like to use, Mother's Day um, might be a might be a bit late in the spring, but that's it's a benchmark that you can go by. A lot of gardening activities don't happen, quote unquote, until Mother's Day, that first week in June kind of thing, because we're concerned about spring frost or late frost. Uh, lawns are a bit different in the sense that. Uh, we're, they're tough. They're not tender like some of our other things. I mean, we typically think about planting out at Mother's Day or after Mother's Day. Your lawn is there year round. So um, again, depends upon where you are in the state. You're going to be out fertilizing very early compared to northern Illinois in the spring of the year, um, just because you have the seasonal differences, the length of the state. So it's um, whatever whatever helps you remember to get it done is, I guess, the important part here. Now, is it just nitrogen that we need to be fertilizing with or uh, do we need to apply phosphorus and potassium as well? For most plants, the major nutritional element is still gonna be nitrogen and that works for turf as well as trees and shrubs. Uh, in Illinois, uh, in 2010, I believe, uh, the state legislature put into place something called the Illinois Phosphorus Law and because Illinois is relatively naturally rich in phosphorus, the concern is that we're putting on more than, more than we need. In many cases, your yard may never need phosphorus based on a soil test. And phosphorus is not truly what I'll call stable in the soil and is easily moved in rain events and excessive watering. So it gets off target. It ends up in the creeks, streams, lakes. So we don't want to really use uh, phosphorus on our lawns unless the soil test needs it. There are always going to be exceptions. You're allowed to use phosphorus uh, on new seedings and you're allowed to use phosphorus on new yards that are being sodded. Phosphorus is absolutely a great uh, root system stimulator to encourage root growth, but once that new growth happens, we are uh, in good shape in terms of phosphorus that naturally occurs in the ground for their uh, for the grass plants uh, to grab it up later on their own. But phosphorus at seeding, phosphorus at sodding is perfectly um, allowable under this, under this, under this regulation. Um, and or if a soil test says your yard is deficient in phosphorus, you can add that in as an amendment as you prep the soil. Um, the nitrogen just nitrogen turns things green and makes things grow. Excessive amounts of nitrogen while it might be fun to see the grass grow and have it dark green, uh, you're doing that at the expense of the root system. Because later on, the root system won't have what it needs to really uh, keep that top growth happy. So a slower rate of growth, nitrogen-wise, is a bit better. And this is why we talk about limiting the nitrogen applications to about one pound per thousand per application. That is a rate that allows the grass to green up or the grass to grow the grass to thicken up, but not at the expense of the, of the root system. So our next maintenance uh, question was, what about lawn aeration? What is it and how do I do it? <laughs> okay, aeration is, well, let me back up the boat and say, you know, if we were in our vegetable garden, we dig and turn the soil every year and there's plenty of oxygen that gets into that profile, we can work a shrub bed or a flower bed and do the same thing. Um, but as a lawn, we put the lawn down from sod or seed, and we really don't do any kind of what I'll call cultivation after that. The lawn is there, and, and how do you get 
make sure it has adequate soil oxygen and, and uh, friability in there. Um, and this is where core aeration is, is, is helpful or aeration is helpful. Um, by far the best kind of aeration is, is core aeration where the machine literally pulls a plug of soil out of the lawn, leaves it laying on top of the ground, leaving a hole behind. And now that hole that's there has created a great amount of additional surface area, if you think about it. Um, more importantly, uh, um, when it rains, for example, or when you water, that water is able to go down into the core and then soak in from there. So that water penetrates into the soil profile far deeper than the typical four or six inches of surface rain would do. And then roots actively grow and take up energy and proliferate in the presence of soil moisture and oxygen, soil air. And of course that plug then that is removed allows that hollow core to allow soil oxygen down in the ground. That core ought to be, for the typical homeowner, those cores are somewhere between three and four inches deep. If you happen to be on the golf course and watch them core there, those core air cores may be six or eight inches deep. Um, and but that's because of a manufactured soil profile that they have that allows that. But the typical homeowner, three to four inches deep, it'd be a great, great level to uh, to uh, to really try for with the machine. Um, the other thing is uh, you should go in two directions with that machine, staying well away from the root zone of shade trees and things. You don't need to be trying to compete and put a hole absolutely everywhere. Um, you, not only will the machine suffer, but if you damage a bunch of tree roots, that's not good either. Um, and, and then uh, those cores are normally left to dry a day or two, three days. And you just, in the next time you mow, the mower just busts them up and you kind of got yourself a mini top dressing. So core, aer core aeration is the best to do, but there are machines that they're called spoon aerators that they just kind of scoop down and pop a chunk of soil out. There are knife aerators that just cut a kind of a, or a slit aerator that just kind of cut a slit through the grass, through the thatch and into the soil. Any kind of aeration is helpful. Um, the core aeration is, you know, the Cadillac of the group. So that's, that's what core aeration is and, and really, and um, what, it, what it does. Uh, and these are machines that we're not going to own. So we're talking about going and renting them. Um, and, and homeowners will kind of balk at the cost to rent that machine. And I always encourage them to go ahead and, uh, you know, talk it up amongst the neighbors. And if you've got two, three, four homes, the aeration itself doesn't take that long because this is a machine that propels itself under speed on its own and you're done before you know it. So if you share that machine over two, three, four lawns, the cost per yard is uh, very reasonable. So I always encourage I always encourage that. Plus, you're kind of, I call it, you do that in self-defense. You want your yard to look good, but you'd also like to see the neighbor's yards look good too. And, and that's a nice way to get at least one of those activities accomplished. All right. So you mentioned thatch a couple minutes ago. Um, so one thing we hear about is dethatching lawns. Is that something we really need to do? And is, is thatch really as bad as people make it out to be? Well, we, we always like to have some evil enemy we can talk about in our yard work, I guess. And, and thatch is something that occurs naturally. Um, thatch is out there in uh, the parkway, in the, in, the, in the circle, in the middle of the street. It's going to happen. It'll be there. Uh, in our home lawns, we're concerned if it exceeds about a half an inch in thickness. Because thatch is... Uh, one of those items that it, when it dries, it can kind of get matty. And then when it rains, the water would rather peel off of that rather than soak in. So it takes a long time. You got to get the thatch moist before it begins to soak through the thatch layer and into the soil. So thatch is not good in, in, in that sense. And about a half an inch seems to be the magic number. Um, so if you, can main, if you can maintain the thatch at a half an inch, it's not that you don't want any thatch at all. Some thatch, some thatch is good. It, it uh, insulates the soil from extremes and temperature changes. It, it uh, 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 
cushions the grass plant crown when we walk on the lawn and have activity on the lawn. So there's some benefits of having some thatch. It's just when it gets too thick, the grass root system would rather grow in the thatch layer because it's like if you the equivalent of say peat moss, it's easier to grow in peat moss than it is a mineral soil. The roots will eventually start to grow just in the thatch layer. And that makes it far more prone to drying out, far more prone to insect and uh, disease damage because there's no backup. There are no roots down in the soil any longer. So that's when thatch really becomes a problem. Uh, when it gets that bad, I would point out that a dethatching machine probably isn't what you want to do because the dethatching machine helps remove some of that dead organic matter, that dead thatch that's there. And if the roots are growing in the thatch layer, uh, one pass over the yard and you realize your lawn and your thatch are in a pile at the edge of the driveway and you have no lawn. So it's a very, uh, it's a very slippery slope as to whether or not you get to use a dethatcher or not. Uh, dethatching machines, this is my opinion here only, is probably the most destructive activity we can do to a lawn because of the fact these blades are not stainless steel surgical. There are these dull, mild steel blades. They're not sharp and they are just brutal when they're talking about removing the, the unwanted thatch. And the other challenge is the thatching machines are very much adjustable. As I said, some thatch is okay. The goal is not to get the lawn down to the bare ground. The lawn is to remove excess thatch. So it's perfectly okay to leave some behind. Um, and, and that's quite, again, quite okay. Uh, so setting the thatching machine up properly is important. And then in terms of timing, just like any other thing we wanna do in our yard, and I've said it already multiple times here, you wanna do these kinds of things during periods of active growth. You want the lawn to be able to recover. So it's, it's important that we time these dethatchings if we choose to use a machine. You can always dethatch by hand about any time of the year you want. And after tugging through the dethatching rake a few times, you're going to find out how much fun that really isn't. Uh, and, 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 and then you're going to realize, well, maybe I don't need to dethatch. Um, maybe the thatch isn't so bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe thatch isn't so bad. So in, in, anyway, those are, the, those are the things about a dethatching machine or a dethatching operation that I, I kind of really can't stress enough. Do it very carefully if you got to do it. Um, there may be core aeration through a heavy thatch layer, top dressing, uh, slit seeding or reseeding. These are activities that will drive the thatch layer down without having to use a dethatching machine. And then is it true we typically see thatch more in kind of our highly manicured lawns compared to our kind of our low input where you don't really do much to your lawn? There was a time in, in, I guess, turf history here where we had a variety of, of cultivar of bluegrass called uh, Marion Kentucky bluegrass. Marion Kentucky bluegrass was the absolute highest thatch generator uh, of, um, of all time. We, for years, compared how much thatch a lawn makes or a cultivar generates using the old Marion Kentucky bluegrass as our model of not what to do. To be more specific to your question, actually, Ken, the more you feed, the more you water, the more the grass grows, the more um, dead grass plant parts are generated. And yes, that can help build up the thatch layer, uh, but fertilization per se isn't the, you know, isn't, isn't the culprit. If your decomposition rate matches the accumulation rate, you still don't have thatch. Um, so it's, it's a matter of managing, you know, mowing, do you or don't you collect the clippings at different times of the year, and then it's really the decomposition rate of the thatch layer that's critical in, in finding out whether you got to run a machine or rake or maybe pick up the clippings, uh, to send them to the compost pile, that kind of thing. So it's, uh, the, the debate goes on, but typically... Uh, you can't just blame. It's not the, it's not the high nitrogen. Well, you're putting the high nitrogen on, yes, and you shouldn't be. <laughs> and if you don't do that, you're not as likely to have a, a, a nearly the thatch buildup, if you will, um, as you would otherwise. So our next question is about um, 
someone who likes a well-maintained yard. So mm -hmm. uh, they do like to maintain their lawn, uh, but they don't really like to apply fertilizers or herbicides. Is there something that they can do to keep their lawn well-maintained, but do it in a more natural way? Sure. And I'm, what I'm about to say works for those low level management lawns, as well as the high level management lawns. Um, there are some things that we do routinely that if we just modify how often uh, we do them, um, change the frequency, uh, things like that, our lawns will look better. And, and if, you know, the world is full of mantras and sayings, but my lawn mantra is you mow high you mow often with a sharp mower blade. Uh, if you do those three things just by themselves, avoiding any other kind of fertilizer inputs or watering or anything else, your lawn is going to look better. That taller grass blade generates more energy. There's more photosynthesis going on. So there's more energy for the grass plant in the roots. The longer grass blade will shade the soil, keeping it cooler. Something again, uh, grasses, our, our Kentucky blue, our grass essentially here in Illinois are still cool season grasses uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, that longer grass blade that's shading the soil also um, shades um, weed seed from the, the, from the needed sunlight it needs to germinate with. So our weed population is better managed. And again, and again from, and from a, generally healthy standpoint, the longer the leaf blade, the deeper the roots. So if we're not gonna water, that deeper root is able to get more moisture on its own and stay greener longer before the drought in the summertime, say in August, finally finally gets here and, and the lawns do go dormant. So there's a lot of benefits from just mowing high, mowing often. The mowing often part is reflective of the, the other well-known um, fact that we talk about all the time that says you don't want to mow off more than a third of the grass blade at one time. That's the often part. If you maintain that mow only mowing off one third at a time, uh, you will not slow the plant from growing. It will remain competitive against weed seeds, for example, or if there's a weed present, it remains competitive against the present weed. So the one third rule is probably the worst one or the hard, I shouldn't say the worst one, the hardest one to follow. Because most of us think about mowing our lawn once a week, regardless of how much it's grown. So in the springtime, we might need to mow twice a week for a period of time. And in the summertime, maybe less than once a week. There's no purpose in mowing a lawn that is not growing other than to put the mower wheel track marks in the lawn that look like we've done something. Uh, in the fall of the year, there's a, there's a, uh, time again where the lawn's going to have that fall flush and but it's not going to be nearly the length of the flush that we have in the springtime because in the fall the plant's putting its energy into the roots and that's far different than than um, seeing that flush growth in the springtime happen above ground uh, yet there is going to be a smaller shorter flush in the fall though so we might have to amp up our mowing frequency again in the fall for a short period of time but those are the things that will make any lawn, uh, regardless of the level of maintenance or the level of input, look, again, kind of look that much better. Um, the other part about the one-third clipping rule is that if you follow that, most often you do not have to collect the clippings. Your lawnmower chops them up fine enough that you just sift right back in. And the finer the leaf blade bits, the quicker they decompose, the sooner they turn around and and uh, uh, collapse and generate and release, I should say, because of the decomposition, energy back into the soil that again is usable by the grass plant. Um, grass clippings left on the lawn will typically generate about, um, about a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. And that's free fertilizer that you haven't had to pay for. Doesn't have anybody's brand name on it, but the grass plant doesn't care. And you just have a very, uh, you're returning that, you're recycling that, and the decomposition rate then of your quote-unquote thatch layer is very good because you, your lawnmower has already chopped the grass blades up into very small, fine bits. So there is the other benefit of mowing often and following the one-third rule. 
Yeah, I will admit, <clears throat> I am not good about the one-third rule, especially in the spring. Sometimes our grass ends up getting to be five, six inches long before we cut it. Well, and in the spring, we do have, I mean, they're not, there are times when you certainly can't win that battle, and I get that. Uh, but it's getting it back into the one-third rule as soon as you can that makes uh, makes such a difference. If you follow the one-third rule, there are times of the year where you really have to focus on where you've mowed for the next cut because that isn't a lot of grass you're removing compared to when it's six inches long and you cut it to three inches. That's an obvious line that's easy to follow. I, I get all that and that's just human nature. I mean, it, it happens, but as soon as you can manage that one third rule better. Um, the other thing that can happen if your lawn is tall and, and you really don't want to pick up the clippings or bag the clippings, and this is another time element here, but mow the lawn using half a swath. Let the lawnmower have more time to, to cut the lawn, chop up the taller grass blades uh, and, and make them small enough that they sift back into the soil. If you take a full width, you know you're going to have grass laying on top when you're done because that just exceeds the capacity of the mower and the mower deck. So if you take a half a pass, um, you've got a better chance of not having to pick up any clippings even though the lawn's taller. So that's just, I don't know if that's a helpful hint or not, but I, it, it just takes more time to get the lawn mowed. Uh, take that against a full width mowing and stopping and emptying the bag. And I bet you half a width is still quicker than when you have to make all the trips to the compost pile or the waste bag um, if you're taking a full swath. So that's something else that we can do. It gets you out of other yard work too, because it takes longer. There you go. Just make sure you stay hydrated. All right, so another question that we frequently get, um, and I'm sure you do too, Richard, is um, I've got a tree and no grass will grow under it. How do I get the grass to grow under my tree? Okay, well, um, I guess the biggest uh, challenge is, or the biggest thing to understand is here that at some point, sunlight will be the limiting factor. If you have, you take a locust tree that has tiny leaves and what's considered to be light filtered shade, you'll be able to grow grass under that tree long sooner or for longer periods of time than say a hard maple or a Norway maple, which has a heavy dense canopy. And at some point, it's just the amount of sunlight that can get to the soil that will support the grass plant. And we're only talking about, that might make the difference of maybe we can increase the light getting to the ground maybe an hour or two a day um, we might have, be able to have grass, but at some point, light is certainly the most, most limiting factor. Um, the other thing we can do, uh, full sun grasses just do not tolerate shade very well at all. So you're looking at fine fescues. Um, that's, a, that's a grass that tolerates drier conditions. It is underneath the tree. Um, it, it does not stand up or support the tree swing underneath the tree. You'll just it'll just disappear in an instant because it physically doesn't have the structure like I say a Kentucky bluegrass or a, a ryegrass does, but at least it's green as you drive down the street and people are looking in the front yard. Um, knowing that trees get taller and wider every year and that again begins to limit the amount of sunlight that's there if there's a way to do any canopy limbing up from the base up, uh, if you again, the, if you can uh, reduce some of that limbing or foliages on the lower part of the tree um, and can get some more sunlight in there on a daily basis, you'll have a, a better luck about growing grass. The other area that we kind of forget about is if you have a shrub border that surrounds your yard, over the years, it gets bigger and bigger. The canopies get wider and wider and there's a just a, becomes a narrow window of when sunlight can even get in there. So on the shrub borders, maybe there's some uh, renovation or renewal pruning that could be done. Shrub borders are notorious for collecting honeysuckles and, and, and uh, mulberries and, and buckthorn and other things that don't need to be there anyway. And all those just keep sunlight from getting into the getting down towards the trunk of the tree. So improving the sunlight is is something that is important. Uh, a couple other management tips, if you will, is because these grasses are growing in the shade, they're barely able to use 
well, they really can't use fertilizer. We, if you over fertilize grasses in the shade, yeah, you make them grow and then you are also making them die prematurely. So uh, in the shade, limit your fertilizer applications. Uh, in the shade, you also want to limit how often you water because soil in the shade is not gonna dry out like it does in the full sun. So you can have overly moist soils which can rot the roots. Um, and that's again, not kind of not a not a good thing at all. Um, so those are some of the things that we can do to try to get grass underneath underneath our trees again. Um, you might have to do a little um, top dressing with organic matter. Think about the fact that the trees say the tree's been there for 35 years. Um, what kind of nutrition level is left? Uh, for that tree or for that soil underneath the canopy of the tree. So there might need to be some organic matter kind of uh, 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 top dressing done to generate a little bit of food uh, naturally for the grass to take up when it can, when it can versus uh, synthetic fertilizer. And that may be something else that will help the lawn. Say if all else fails, plant some hostas. <laughs> You know, I and I have been in yards where even the hostas are weak and spindly looking. There, there comes a limit when sunlight is just not enough, is not there even for our most dense shade-loving perennials that we that we have. And after that, the considerations are uh, could be something, you know, mulches, organic mulches, uh, done properly. Um, th this may be the best alternative to mud. So another area we often can see uh, some thin grass or bare spots is along brick borders. And so this person is commenting that they have a brick border around their landscaping. However, their grass won't grow along the brick. Instead, moss will grow there. How can they get rid of the moss and get um, some grass growing again? I got to hook that back into the last part of the question. It's usually uh, a condition of sunlight, but also uh, when I hear the word moss and or algae, I think of heavier moist soils, which is the environment that mosses and algae enjoy. So that might tell me that uh, uh, the soil profile and along that area is, is consistent, remains consistently moist to the extent that grass uh, won't, won't tolerate it. So some of the things we could address, again, would be um, what kind of sunlight's getting down there. Um, is that brick border literally acting as a dam and stopping moisture from going from point A to point B and it's piling up? And is that why it's moist all the time? Um, the more often or the longer we have heavy, moist, wet soils, this actually begins to change the uh, pH of the soil. And if you get very high or very low, again, grass, along with anything else, isn't going to really function very well. Um, the remedies could include, as I mentioned, maybe creating a little bit more light. They may have to uh, gently modify the grade so that there's the surface water that does end up there has an opportunity to go elsewhere so that area dries out. Managing that water, as I mentioned before, um, the grade change, as I said, is important. Um, one of the things that happens over time, and maybe a little more so in heavy wet soils, is compaction occurs. Um, and so aeration, again, may play a part in whether or not uh, you'll be able to grow grass next to the, uh, next to that brick edging, if I'm getting the picture right. The, the shrubs themselves may be providing so much shade just at the edge of the edging, especially if the edging was put in when the plants were younger and now the shrubs are quite a bit larger and the edging is not out the, at the outside edge of the bed any longer, but kind of towards the inside of the bed. Uh, you just may not have enough sunlight to grow, uh, to grow the grass there. That's my thoughts on that anyway. So like, like your shade under trees, you could always embrace that moss. And for us, um, north side of our fence um, is, you know, always, in full shade and we've just kind of let the moss grow. And I, I mean, I may be, I'm probably the exception here, but I like kind of that look of that big patch of moss. It's nice and a green carpet there, at least in the spring and the summer, it doesn't look too great. Um, but you can always embrace that moss. And there are some people I've heard of kind of replacing their entire lawn if they've got a lot of shade and just doing moss as well. So 
if you if you travel to countries outside the U.S. and in particular, say England, where they have a lot of weather that say is uh, that mosses really like, there are entire garden collections of moss gardens in England that you can go visit on the garden tours, and the entire yard, or if you will, anything that might have been grass and is now moss. Uh, it's unbelievable to see them. So yes, I agree with you, Ken. Sometimes I'd, I'd rather have moss and algae than mud. Uh, and that's what happened. If you don't, you know, there are certainly remedies to controlling moss. You can buy a product and put it on. But then what have you got? You've typically got open, bare, muddy ground. Um, you're always cleaning up the kids and the dog's paws. Uh, I'd rather have something green there of, of some substance may might not be grass, but certainly um, good alternatives uh, might be those very low level, high moisture plants like mosses and algae. You have to plan a trip to England and do a moss garden tour. That's right. All right. So last kind of question topic we have here, um, mm. we, and I would include myself as one of these people, we often talk about um, leaving the leaves where they lie. Uh, in the fall, because a lot of our insects for pollinators and other insects, both good and bad, will overwinter uh, in those leaves. Um, but that can kind of cause issues um, for turf. You don't want those leaves smothering your turf. So kind of, do you kind of know how many leaves, is too many leaves to leave on, on your yard over the winter or over the fall into the winter? And kind of what can we do about that? Well, to your point about... Uh... Uh, habitat for our wildlife, our insects and things, um, they're going to prefer to take harbor in, and I'll say whole leaves. So if you if you ha have that concern already, you know, take take the blower, take the lawnmower, do something, and blow the whole leaf to the vegetable bed or into the shrub beds or uh, to the edge of the woods and let them let them go whole. If you want uh, the the insects to be to be happy. Um, in terms of lawn mowing, uh, typically we are able to mow and mulch the leaves um, as long as when we're all done, we're not smothering the lawn with the mulched leaves. Uh, once, once we get to that time, once we get to that, so in the, you might be able to mulch your leaves in um, for the first few weeks, if you will, into the fall, but then when the majority of the leaves come down, it's just going to be too much then we're talking about uh, a potentially uh, bagging them and, and uh, putting them in the compost pile in the backyard or the compost bin. We're talking about it, you know, if you fill all that up and don't need any muddy anymore there, you can use that mulched material as organic matter. Uh, again, in the vegetable garden, in the flower beds, in the shrub beds, um, in the vegetable bed, it's easy, then it just gets turned under. And, and it's easy to manage that way. Um, flower, annual flower beds, same thing. They're annual, so there's open space. So turning them under is an easy use of that uh, chopped up mulch from the, from the leaves at some point. And again, it depends upon where you leave and how, live and how many trees and all that. But then it's time to bag up the rest and set them to the curb for the community recycle program. Um, but that's only after you've used everything you can in your yard to benefit your landscape and your soil and your lawns and all your beds. It's not the first thing you do. It's the last thing you do. So that ultimately is, is uh, kind of the, the pattern. And uh, for some folks that look at, say, the neighbor leaving leaves on the lawn, you're, you, truly you're not, you know, I'm right there with you, Ken. I'm not, we're not being lazy it's a very valuable resource in the home landscape and the grass will benefit from that chopped up leaves because it's organic matter. Uh, there's lots of carbon there. And by the way, um, a lot of our critters that are in the soil, the microflora, the, the, uh, in the, the soil biome, they really enjoy and have to have carbon in order to increase themselves and be healthy. So uh, getting that organic matter, getting that carbon back into the soil profile is a great thing uh, to do. The folks that uh, try to do things organically, including lawn care, one of their goals is to incorporate carbon back into the soil profile because the carbon and the bioflora and the microbes um, 
live and die. And in doing so, they, they provide the nutrition for the grass root. It's not coming from a fertilizer bag anymore. It's coming from the soil profile itself. So those are very necessary things if you're being organic about what you're doing in terms of lawn care. So you got, have any callers called in? You got any other follow-up here that I can, that I can uh, begin to talk about or have I missed a point or two for us here today? I think you pretty well covered it. Yeah, no, no callers. No callers. All righty. All right. <laughs> and if there are any other callers that do call in or anybody has any questions, uh, Richard does have a website called Lawn Talk, Lawn Care for Northern Illinois. So that webpage for that will attach in the, um, or show, we'll show the link for that in the show notes. Uh, so be sure to check that out as there's a lot of great information there. I, I know the website says for Northern Illinois because that was its origins many, many years ago, but so much of the care and culture and the fertilizer information and the management questions, irrigation, those kinds of things, it applies statewide. It's not something that's special to Northern Illinois. Um, all we do is change uh, the time of the year that we might be doing them. And again, to reinforce all that, typically we're doing things in our lawn when the lawn can recover. So the lawn has to have you know, you're going to core aerate, you're going to top dress, you're going to reseed. Uh, you want to do that just as or, or, or just before the lawn has a natural flush of growth, say, in the fall of the year. So any of these practices that's talked about on that site function statewide. It's a good site. Thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, absolutely. It's one I use a lot, so it's always good to share with others. All right. Well, thank you, Richard. That was a lot of great information. Hopefully people learned a lot and start taking a little bit better care of their lawns this fall. Any, any, again, high, mow often with a sharp mower blade and you're good to go. You're gold. All right. Thanks all. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson. It is usually edited by Chris Enroth, but you're stuck with Katie and I. So if you have any complaints about the editing, contact one of us. Katie, thank you for, as always, for being on today. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully we'll have uh, Chris back maybe in a couple weeks. Yes. Hopefully, if he hopefully can get out of jail or I'm in jury duty. <laughs> hopefully our fearless leader will be back uh, next week. We will have a show. I'm not entirely sure what. It'll be a surprise, but it will definitely be good. I promise you that. Uh, and to all of you listening, thank you for doing what you do the best and listening. And if you're watching on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing. <laughs>